0: Matthew 23. Uh, for the past three weeks, we've been, we've surveyed Matthew chapter 20, uh, from chapter 1 to 22. Uh, and, by, and by the way, I, I I did my math wrong. So again, I'm your pastor. I'm not a mathematician. I, I said that it, Matthew's taken three years. It's, it, it, we're coming on four years now that we've been studying Matthew. And um, so it was a, a brief overview for the past three weeks, highlighting the general setting and how it anticipates and prepares the reader to understand and even really just heartily agree with Christ's prophetic pronouncements in the Olivet Discourse of God's imminent judgment upon unrepentant Israel, which then ultimately anticipates the concluding commission to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to all nations that we come to at the conclusion of Matthew chapter. So today we're going to narrow our study from the general to the immediate historical context of the Olivet Discourse, explaining the particular circumstances of chapter 23 uh, that directly sparked this strong message of pending judgment and destruction, and, and to be able to see its application. And so again, I'll just remind you, uh, that much of what I've I've presented to you, I just want to be clear about this, um, if you'd like to go over all the references and details given so far, that much of that can be found in the book that I've referenced multiple times uh, by Dr. Ken Gentry called The Olivet Discourse, Made Easy. And, uh, and I'll be continuing to use that quite a bit throughout this study. Uh, as I've, I've mentioned, he especially is helpful with outlining the differences between the preterist interpretation of, of this prophecy versus the futurist interpretation, which is, uh, uh, among us here, there's uh, di- you know difference of opinion. So it's a, it's a helpful resource in understanding the other side and what's being said. Again, I'll just remind you maybe one more time, the futurist interpretation that we approach in Matthew 24 um, is really, for most, it's the default interpretation today which sees Jesus referring entirely to uh, or primarily to events that are still to occur in, within our future, uh, the present, the future uh, of, from us today uh, at the very end of the church age, whereas the predest, preterist, or the more accurately, the partial preterist, and preterist refers to um, past, so that the word preterist um, sees a past fulfillment arguing that the details of the Great Tribulation uh, outlined in verses 4 to 34 were primarily speaking of events in the lifetime of his original audience, of his disciples uh, at the end of the Old Covenant Age, with God's covenant judgment, covenantal judgment coming upon Israel and the destruction of the first century temple and the, the uh, permanent removal of the sacrificial system uh, and uh, the people being scattered from there. Well, I don't expect to convince. uh, Really, I don't expect to convince anyone by my own wisdom to to um, come to my same conclusions. All uh, I don't. All I ask for everyone here, as we move forward, is that we all be willing, regardless of our backgrounds, to check our traditions and our assumptions about the future. At the door of scripture. And that's all I would ever ask of anybody. It's not to check I don't it's not that I'm saying set aside what you've been taught. Never anybody who tells you just forget about everything like and and you know listen to me. No. Take what, take those traditions, take those assumptions, those things that you that you you hold to, and let's put them under the light of scripture together and, and put it to the test of God's word um, as we work through this. Uh, under the illuminating light of the Word of God, and that we would ask the Spirit to teach, to reprove, to correct, and to train us in righteousness, that we, we might grow in our fr- uh, fruitfulness for His kingdom. This is not just about head knowledge and having a, you know, the right theological systems, but this is about producing uh, fruit uh, and a life of joy and faithfulness uh, in our Lord's kingdom. And so... Um, but our, and what we believe will have an effect upon what we, how we live. And so, um, yeah, I might, that we would not grow in our confidence in our theological systems, but my desire is that we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of His Word and power to complete it. So, again, we're going to look now. I've been reading Matthew 24, to get us familiar with it, we're going to come back to that. I've, I've been appreciating that, just to get familiar with that text. Uh, today, since we're reviewing just chapter 23, I wanted to read that together with you. Again, Matthew 23 really is very... It, it, it's, it's not the same thing as the Olivet Discourse. As we'll see, there is a, a, a changing of scene. At the end of 23, Christ is going to leave the temple... And then he's going to go with his disciples and he's going to sit on Mount Olivet. And so there is, there's a distinction between the two. But as I hope we'll see, they, they do go hand in hand. Um, and so we'll turn to Matthew 23. I'll ask that you stand with me for the reading of the word of God as we read this together. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. For you are not called uh, to uh, to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven." Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, "...which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead peoples, bones, and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets." Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some... You will uh, you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are the words of Christ, the word of God incarnate. Let's give thanks. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent your son, who was truly a, uh, who was the prophet that was uh, prophesied to come. And so, Lord, we pray that we would, you would help us to heed his words today that you would remove the spiritual blindness from our eyes, that we would not be uh, the religious hypocrites of whom Jesus spoke to, but that, and if we are, Lord, that you would, you would move us to repentance today, that we would hear the truth, that we would hear the voice of the shepherd, and that we would follow his voice. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Maybe may be seated. So to this point, Matthew has brought together a wide variety of sayings and incidents which together add up to a clear repudiation of the official leadership of Israel. And we have Jesus' confrontations with the religious leaders rapidly intensifying that we look through chapters 21 to 22, concluding in verse 46. Uh, chapter 22, verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any questions. And so all of this kind of culminates that into chapter 23, where they just, they're just silent before him, while Jesus just ruthless, ruthlessly exposes their hypocrisy, expressing uh, God's judgment upon and his rejection of their empty worship. And he warns that the long-delayed judgment must now fall upon this generation, verse 36. And so first, I'm just gonna we're gonna briefly look over it together. Uh, in verse verses 1 to 12 is the first section where Jesus is speaking to the crowds. It's still, and, it, and it's it's still regarding the corruption of the scribes and Pharisees, but he's speaking to everyone else, and he's warning of these religious leaders. Verse 1 says, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sat on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. And so again, we've seen there that while Jesus acknowledges the legitimacy of the, their position of authority, the seat would be the the, judge, the seat of judgment, the, the, the seat of making decisions, calling the shots. He acknowledges that that's, that, they, that they, that's where they sit. But he essentially rebukes their abuse of that said authority. He says, verse 4, that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, verse 5 says. And verse 6, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the house, uh, in, in the synagogues. So concluding his message directed to the crowds in verse 11, Jesus asserts, he says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. So he's given a corrective to what, he, what's going, what they see going on. And he's saying to the disciples, especially, because he knows what, that they're, they're going to be. The, 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 the ones that we saw earlier are going to sit on the 12 tribes of Israel, judging the 12 tribes. They're going to be in the seat. And he's saying to them, the greatest among you shall be the servant. And he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted and if it's it's interesting to consider it according to John, uh, eleven forty seven, that that teaching that being humbled from their positions of power and privilege is precisely what the Pharisees deeply feared would occur if they failed to judge Jesus. They were, if you look at the conversation in John chapter eleven verse forty seven, uh, that they warn the Sanhedrin. They say. If we let him go on like this, in in 1148 he says, "If, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see what they're trying to protect there? You see what their concern is for there? It's not about the sheep. It's not about the vulnerable. It's not about the oppressed. They're concerned about their positions. And so, in verse, and so Jesus says, whoever, does, whoever exalts himself, they're going to be humbled. And whoever humbles himself, they will be exalted. And so in verse 13, Jesus begins speaking directly to the scribes and Pharisees themselves now. He's speaking directly to them, levying seven woes against them. And I just want, it might sound um, repetitive here because it is, but I want you to just hear it for yourself. Verse 13. But woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. Verse 15. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. Verse 16. Woe to you blind guides. Verse 23. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, what is the number seven symbolic of throughout Scripture? What? What? Perfection. Completion. I mean, it's, it's right in the very first week, at the very beginning of Scripture. The word literally is the word seven, seven sheva, sheva, is the same different um, same consonants, different vowels, for the word that means fullness or complete. And so throughout Matthew, we learn that Jesus has come preaching The kingdom of heaven saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But here at verse 13, he rebukes Israel's religious teachers because he says, they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For he says, you neither enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who would to enter in. See, they use their authority as teachers of God's law to actively resist. Jesus' teaching. So much so that when they lead someone to proselytize or or to convert to their godless form of Judaism, verse 15 says, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And so he exposes them then, logically, as blind guides and fools who are headed to destruction And he says you're traveling across sea and land to bring as many people as you can with you to destruction. And keeping with the symbolic use of the number seven, the seventh woe beginning in verse 29 really does. If you just consider that woe in and of itself has a ring of completion and finality to it to all of the pronouncements of judgment to this point. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those. You are the, the offspring of those who murdered the prophets. Like father, like son. And Jesus reminds them of their history there, of, of violently rejecting God's prophets sent to warn them of his coming judgment, I mean, and, and just interval judgments, time and time again. There's multiple examples resulting in the, dis- and ultimately resulting in the destruction of that first temple. Um, and in Second Chronicles 36, it gives a, a, a just a really good example of that. How God, he says in his compassion, he sent them messenger after messenger, but she would not heed their warnings. But unlike that first great destruction, there is a sense of finality and completion to this imminent judgment, saying in verse 32, he says, fill up then the measure of your father's. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. And the verb, the verb fill up there means to fulfill or complete. Play ra'o, to, f- to fulfill or complete. To, he's, he's saying bring to completion what your fathers began. What your, Bring to completion what your fathers set in motion. Verse 33, he says... He continues, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? It's a rhetorical, it's the, the answer is assumed. Therefore, he says, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, and of course, Abel is the first martyr, uh, righteous man recorded who was martyred in the Bible, to Zechariah, Zechariah, who in the Hebrew order of the Bible, he was the last martyr, the last prophet to be murdered um, in, in in the Hebrew scriptures. He says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So even though Israel has this history of killing her prophets. We see in verse, 30, uh, verse 34, Jesus, he says, he's going to send them more prophets to confront them uh, to, who follow after him. He's going to send more to them still. And Stephen, of course, he was stoned to death for making this very point. If you look at Acts 7.51, he said As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He's talking about John the Baptist there. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Speaking of Christ now. And so what do they do to Stephen? They they kill him. They do exactly what Christ said they would do. But of course, before Stephen before the the first martyr Stephen, there is no more blatant and damning witness to this fact than the Jews' own testimony themselves. When we consider Jesus' trial. And I just want to briefly look at it. We're going to get there in Matthew 27 eventually together. But I just want you to consider this testimony to what Jesus is prophesying in verse 23. Well, we see, uh, of course, in Jesus' trial... After beating and torturing Christ and bringing forward various false witnesses, Jesus as a lamb being led to the slaughter is he's not right, he's not opening his mouth to defend himself and and he's doing that and it's fulfilling the prophecies about him and at this point, even Pilate's wife right she has a dream um and, he, and she she says she says to Pilate to have nothing to do with this righteous man she's she's scared because uh, she has this warning, and what 's fascinating is that in all of this, try as he may, Pilate can find absolutely no fault in him, which throughout Matthew was really the prevailing testimony of all christ 's opponents who right, we see all who they sought to find fault in him in time, they, they, they sought to, to, to trap him in His words, throughout His ministry. And yet we saw time and time again, didn't we, that they were silenced by His wisdom and by His own acts of compassion and mercy upon people. And so here, with Jesus standing in silence at His trial, the testimonies against Him, right, they're not lining up. And so and Pilate, it says in verse uh, Matthew 27, verse 18... Uh, that Pilate, he, he believes Jesus is innocent, and it says that he knew it was out of envy that they delivered him up. And, and, uh, and it's, it's written down here as a matter of historic record at Jesus' trial. So it's, it's in writing for all throughout history, for us today, 2,000 years after, to look at this, to recall these events as he stood on trial before his enemies, that Jesus, without even a word of self-defense, was found to be blameless, according to both the law of God and of Rome, of, of men at that time. And so Pilate, right, he's trying to pull out all of the, the political strings that he has at his disposal, having given them the option of releasing Barabbas, a notoriously known criminal or Jesus, and they asked to release Barabbas. And Pilate says to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, verse, they said, Let him be crucified. And verse 23, and he said, Why? What evil has he done? Right? Just give me something, he's saying but they shouted all the more let him be crucified. Uh, John 19:15 records there that the chief priests answered we have no king but Caesar. This is a side point, but it's going to be relevant later. But it's here's a question for you there. It's going to be rhetorical because there might be different answers among you here. But who is the great? Who is Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes? In Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, riding this beast with uh, eight heads and ten, 10 crowns. Who is that? Who is Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes represented of? We see we see a hint, I think, in Ezekiel. I'm going to give you a, basically an assignment as we as you go on. I'm reading Ezekiel out of my plan. I don't. Know if, are you continuing, Rhoda, to read? Are you, I don't want to ask you. I already asked you in front of everyone. Perfect. It's fascinating to be reading Ezekiel uh, as I continue this study. But Ezekiel 16:30 decries Israel's idolatry, saying. And of course, and remember, actually, by the time we're in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is in Babylon. Uh, he's exiled. Um, so the initial judgment has, our, that initial judgment has occurred. But he's, he's speaking to the people there in Babylon. And he says, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorn payments. He says, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your horns. In other words, he's saying to them to Israel with their adultery idolatry and going after all these other gods and these nations and these other powers, and going to Egypt and right, and receiving help from their armies. He's saying the only thing that makes you different from, from everyone else, from the prostitute who, who, who you know, does her deed to get paid is that you, you do it for nothing. You, you, she, truly the, mother of pro, the, the prostitute of prostitutes is what he's saying. And the promised Messiah stands on trial before them, and they say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, verse uh, 27, verse 24 says, but rather that a riot was beginning, He took water, and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And he says, he's saying, I want nothing to do with this. And how, and of course, to a degree, he does. When you abrogate, he had a responsibility. He abrogated his responsibility. So not only, so... We're going to see the responsibility falls on the Jews, but that doesn't get Pilate out of what his responsibility was. But nonetheless, he says, I want nothing to do with this so that this could happen. Right? How did the Jews answer before Pilate and the very face of God, the son? Right? Jesus is standing there. and All the people answered, his blood be on us. And our children. That was their. That was the, the Jews. That was their own testimony. His blood be on us and our children. So I hope you can see why I, I go down that trail to bring us back to what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter twenty-three, verse thirty-four. He tell, He told them. He says, "All the righteous blood shed on earth." from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, and of all the prophets, verse 34, that he would send them in his name. He's saying it's going to all fall upon your heads. He says upon this generation, verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And at his trial, Pilate He's saying, leave me out of this. This is your call to make so long as it doesn't stir up a riot, right? Do do what you want. Just don't cause any trouble here. And so the people assure Pilate that they are taking full responsibility for this decision. His blood be on us and our children. And within 40 years of all this, the Jews were utterly slaughtered in Jerusalem. And as we come to that passage in chapter 24 that describes the severity of the destruction, we're going we're to take a look at some of the historical accounts and details showing how verses, uh, verse 21's description of the tribulation, that, that he says, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be, how it can be demonstrated as a matter of historical record. And I'm going to do my best when we get there to protect the little ears here um, when when we get there. But again, the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem at at AD 70 was absolutely brutal. I've I've just read a few of the accounts um, that's being described as unparalleled to anything I've read. Famines resulting in cannibalism. Women, young children, the elderly, regardless of age, being slaughtered. And the temple being taken apart, literally stone after stone, dispersing those who were able to escape around the world. And the people at the Messiah's trial of the beloved Son of God, the people said to God, they said, lay any blame, if there's any blame here to be found, lay it on us. And within that generation, true to his word that came from the mouth of Jesus, God brought the full weight of covenant, of covenant judgment upon their heads and upon their children. He says, verse 36, he said, Truly I say to you, he's speaking there um, to his disciples. Oh, sorry, at this point, I've got the elephant in my head. He's saying there, he's speaking to the Pharisees, remember, directly. He says, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And I've explained before how the expression, uh, truly I say to you, liter- it, literally in the Greek, it's the word amen, amen. And it's used To not only draw attention to the truthfulness of what comes after, uh, but to emphasize the certainty of the thing being said. So it's not just drawing attention like, hey, listen up. But it's it's speaking to the assurance you can have. Especially, and and we see that it's especially often used when Jesus is communicating hard truths that would be difficult for his audience to accept. Uh, and and when, I, when I say difficult, not in the sense of it would be hard for them to intellectually understand, but we see him saying, truly, I say to you, amen, I say to you, um, because what follows would have been hard to hear because it was contrary to popular opinion. It was contrary to what they were, were expecting. It, would, it might be a surprise. So he says, so that's what that word is meant to instill. Uh, be re- prepare your ears. Because this might throw you off a bit, truly I say to you. And it comes up again; we're going to get there. It comes up again in an even greater emphasis, using a double negative in chapter twenty-four, verse thirty-four. So you'll see that will be helpful for us understand uh, understanding that passage. After describing, uh, he details the details of the coming tribulation. He concludes in verse thirty-four saying, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And that verse is actually the key, it really, that will see to unlocking much of the confusion surrounding the Olivet Discourse. And so I believe it is no coincidence for the sake of his contemporary audience, as well as for our benefit today, that Jesus headed off that statement with that solemn note, Amen. Truly, I say to you. And the public discourse of woe upon Israel's religious leaders ends with that final expression. So we have that last and final woe, and then we have this last lament in verses 37 to 39. Because in spite of God's repeated appeals to find refuge, to calling them to find refuge in him, Jesus knows that they have ears but not ears to hear. They have eyes, but they do do not have eyes that will see because they have hearts, he says, that are not willing to do so. Right? I would have gathered you up, but you were not willing. He says, see your house. By the way, I, I can't remember if i mentioned this before. Back in chapter 21, it was my father's house, right? That he was concerned about. My father's house that he came to cleanse. Now he says it's your house. See your house, the temple, your house is left to you desolate. Verse 39 For I tell you, again, he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that generation. He says, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord that phrase there I, we went over this a couple of months ago until you say is, is a condition of indefinite possibility it's not of a, a definite but indefinite possibility and that it does not it, it is not asserting that israel will indeed Uh, willingly receive Jesus as Christ, especially the people he's speaking to. He says, you, he's talking to the Pharisees in front of him, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's, it's, it's not saying that they will in fact receive him as their Christ. Jesus has already mourned that they wouldn't willingly receive him. Israel is, a, is about to fill up the full measure of the guilt of their fathers, right? So we, it, we, they're going to crucify Christ, persecute his followers. They're going to take the guilt of the righteous blood of the prophets upon themselves. And so therefore, based on the massive weight of the context that we've been going through together, behind this statement that Jesus is prophesying here a constrained admission of His blessedness. Because they will have no choice in that day when, this, when all of this comes down upon them and upon their heads. They'll have no choice once that happens but to acknowledge that Jesus was indeed a true prophet. That he is indeed the eternal son of God whom they crucified. And, was, would, and at that point they would have to admit he, he was still alive because his word came true. And sitting at the right hand of the father and accomplishing in heaven and on earth everything that he promised to accomplish by the power of his word and his spirit. And that all who stand in his way will be crushed and come to nothing but all who are humbled and believe upon him will find refuge and life. And so my goal over the past few weeks has been to show you how Matthew is not just a random collection uh, of stories about the life and ministry of Jesus but that he was that Matthew was creatively weaving the narratives surrounding Christ's coming in such a way as to present a united portrait of God's redemptive plan throughout history and reaching its climax in the fullness of time, in the fulfillment, in the coming of Jesus Christ, who first bringing salvation and thereafter is bringing judgment. So Matthew has prepared us well for the all of it discourse, I hope I've shown them. As we will see, that this famous message turns toward the ex- execution of God's judgment upon Israel, at the destruction of Jerusalem and temple, nearing the end of approximately forty years within that generation. We we read we sang from that psalm, right? How long was did it take for that generation who rebelled before God they would could go into the promised land. It was a generation. It's 40 years. And about 40 years from the time Jesus said these words in 70 AD, you have the, the, the hammer coming down on Jerusalem. Now, just to, to finish off here, I just want to... We've been doing a lot of head work, a lot of um, just laying the groundwork. But I want to just take a moment for us... For some application. Um, right? Like, so what? what? What is this all? Why does this matter to you today? This week? And I, I could, I, there's two things that come to mind. And really, well, yeah. So the first one that we need to re- revisit always. Are you a religious hypocrite? His judgment is coming. Are you a religious hypocrite? Right? Do you, do you do what you do just to be seen by others? Do you do uh, what you do? Do you set up these rules and these laws of, like, you know, in principle of swearing and saying, if I do this, and it, then, you know, it, it adds up to this good work and God's going to bless. Do you have your own rules and your own standards and rituals for religion for how to please God what is acceptable to him but then you deny the weightier matters of the law right? making a big deal of the little things that you can kind of puff your chest up in and say I've done this but then you totally neglect the, the weightier issues are you a religious hypocrite or have you been hypocritical maybe that's not who you are but is there, Have you been a hypocrite in any area, right? In a particular sin, a particular um, area of weakness, of shame in the public square, of being shamed, ashamed of your faith, ashamed of the gospel. Well, is there any area that you have been a hypocrite that you need to repent of and fear God rather than fearing man? But secondly, but I want it, and this is—we're going to actually. This is probably going to be the application almost every week for a while. We'll see. I—I I, I haven't got that much ahead of myself. But the fulfillment of God's judgment in history. Some of you might be thinking, right? If, well, if you're saying that the great—that that the tribulation being described, that it's been fulfilled. It, it, God poured out His wrath uh, on 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 Israel, and now now that's done. So so then what? Like, what does it matter? the fulfillment of God's judgment in history ought to awaken and strengthen our confidence of God's coming judgment at the end of history. In other words, if God in the past has said judgment is coming and he comes down and he, and he does it and he fulfills it within the year when he says it will come, we, we can count on God when he says judgment is coming. We can Depend on that. Uh, Nahum, little-known minor prophet, Nahum uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, The Lord is slow to anger. God has been patient with you, hasn't he? Can anybody here say that God has not been patient with you? I don't care where you stand with God right now whether you stand in Christ or not. He is, if, you, if you're here today and you're breathing and you're hearing what he is saying, speaking to you by, in his word today, he has been slow to anger. But the prophet also continues and he says, and he is great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So again, if Jesus was able to predict the coming of Jerusalem's destruction, pretty much down to the year. Should we not take him seriously when he says that a time is coming when he is going to judge all of the world, both the living and the dead? Do you see the application there in, in seeing that it if if he's what he's done in the past, it it means it has consequences to us and to our future. In Acts 17:30, right, Paul's speaking to the Gentiles. He says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, which, by the way, he also predicted and it came true. So, in other words, Jesus and we're going to see Jesus will go on to say in the Olivet Discourse in, in chapter 24, verse 36. And then I'm going to explain this more later, but that's where we see a shift in the discourse from, I believe, the time of judgment upon the Jews to where it shifts then to the future, to the coming, second coming of Christ. Because he, he's, if we look, as we read through Matthew 24, he's speaking with certainty that he says again uh, three times within this generation, right? And, he, and he's so definite. But then all of a sudden we come to verse 36 and he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the sun. So now how he knows, he's telling them, he's warning them, this is coming. And then all of a sudden he speaks very generally. That's why I believe he's now pointing us and he's answering the question to the end of all things. And when Jesus says that he, But when Jesus says that his judgment is going to come upon a nation within a generation. So this is the lesson. This is the application for you. When Jesus says his judgment is going to come within a a generation. You better believe he's going to do it. Because he did it. He's proven it. And you better repent and believe upon him. And follow him. But when Jesus... And so when Jesus also says... That an even greater eternal judgment is going to come at an hour that you do not expect. Before it was within a generation. Now he says, it's coming when you you will not expect it. How much more ought we to heed his warning and seek his mercy and atonement for sin through his death on the cross while his mercy still stands? So, Do not delay. Do not galvanize the hardening of your heart, right? As the psalm, as we began with that psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as your fathers did. Do not harden your heart to his grace and mercy offered to all who hear his voice and believe in him today. Repent and believe because the king of kings has come. And the one who falls on him will be broken to pieces. And when, it fall, and when he falls on anyone, it will crush him. Yet Jesus also assures us that whoever willingly humbles himself and comes to him. He says in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Our God indeed is mighty to save let's pray heavenly father we thank you for sending your son to the jew first and also to the greek that in christ we have a savior who can save to the uttermost Lord, we pray that you would, I just pray in this moment, it just came to my heart that while I ask for your grace and mercy to be upon us, Lord, help us to love our enemies the way Christ loved his enemies. To go to them even if it meant his death to go to them and offer himself and to speak the truth to them with boldness and clarity, even though it would cost him his own life. So God, help us to have that boldness and conviction to love our enemies, to to have a a grasp of where history is going and the uh, the judgment that is to come, that we would, uh, Lord, forgive us for the times in which we've, we've grown apathetic, we've grown um, just so used to that fact. And Lord, again, we ask that it, may that begin with us and in our hearts, Lord. And may it produce a spirit for all who, for, who come to you in faith that it would produce just an offering of thanksgiving and gratitude and worship and a life of serving you, Lord, and that for the heart here who has never bowed the knee to you, that the, the hearing of your coming judgment would cause them to seek refuge and salvation in Christ's name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.